they ordered some inmates to build a large gallows with eight nooses. And one day we were all stopped from going to work. We had to assemble around this large gallows and we had to watch these eight men being led out one by one and hanged. And if they caught anyone closing their eyes or, or turning their heads away, they would rifle butt us and threaten us. Anyone who couldn't keep pace but begun trailing behind was immediately shot and their bodies just left where they fell. The hunger and cold was really indescribable. I cannot find words to make people understand what effect um, starvation has on someone. It takes a woman's mind completely. Each day the convoy stopped an SS officer appeared at the top, looked down and selected more than 20 of us randomly. Each in turn had to be dragged up on deck and were thrown alive into the sea. We could just hear the scream and splash. So he murdered 25 or so people daily. Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. A few weeks ago I had the privilege of hearing the testimony of Mr. Manfred Goldberg. Manfred Goldberg is not a Holocaust survivor. He's a Holocaust hero. They all are. And frankly, survivor does not do justice to what this man has been through. And I was completely blown away by his testimony, as was the entire audience. And so will you be when you hear his story. He has been to hell on earth and he lives to tell the tale. And I don't think I will ever come to terms with the privilege of being able not just to read about what happened in the Holocaust, but to speak to the people face to face that went through it. I think our children and grandchildren will be amazed that we were able to have the privilege of speaking face to face to these heroes. Manfred, thank you so much for your time, for taking your time out to be with us here today. It's so greatly appreciated. Um, Welcome to JTV. The JTV audience are, I know, going to be so fascinated to hear, hear your story. Um, I want to give you the space just to share your story in as much detail as you're able to offer us. And uh, then at the end, we can dive into a few uh, specific questions about what happened and, and the future. Um, I may ask for a few cl clarifying questions if, you know, if, if it's necessary during your testimony, but please yeah. just take the space to tell us your journey. All right, thank you very much for your generous introduction. I'll get straight to my story. I was born in Germany in 1930, just three years before the Nazis gained power. Both my parents were born in Poland, but came as individually as youngsters to Germany. They met in Germany, they married and settled in Germany in a town called Kassel. It was a smallish town of about 250,000 inhabitants, of whom roughly 5,000 were Jews. There were two distinct communities in Kassel. The majority were German-born Jews. Many of those families had lived in Germany for hundreds of years and were fairly assimilated by then they considered themselves Germans first and Jews incidentally. <clears throat> Over the 
couple of decades post-World War primarily, uh, quite a number of Polish Jews had settled in Kassel uh, as refugees. And they were not welcomed by the German Jews because they were much more visibly Jewish. They were much more traditional and observant and therefore there were two separate communities. Many of the German-run synagogues were along reform lines and the Polish Jews were much more traditional. So most of our friends, with very, very few exceptions, were of the Polish-Jewish background. That's how I grew up. The one thing that was shared by all Jews in Kassel was the one and only Jewish primary school. I was enrolled in that school, although it was oriented mainly towards German-Jewish um, leanings, which meant it was not sort of a, um, an intensely religious Jewish school. It was primarily a secular school with a little sprinkling of Jewish education thrown in. When I was six years old, I began going to school. And by then, of course, um, the Nazi ongoing indoctrination of hatred against Jews had already begun to bear fruits. As soon as they came to power, they formed an organization along the lines of the Boy Scouts in this country, which called the Hitler Youth, Hitler Jugend in German. And they were subjected to intense Jew hatred propaganda. And I, I recall that on our way to or from school, um, we were repeatedly molested by these youth, sometimes they lay in wait for us. And we were um, ordered, really, really ordered rather than advised, never ever to stop to fight back, but in such a situation to run as fast as our legs would carry us just to get away from them. Um, it would uh, save what could be very serious repercussions. So my youth in Germany was not normal in any way. I began schooling in 1936. In 1938, November 1938, um, on the 9th of November, the night of the 9th of November, there took place a nationwide anti-Jewish orgy, which was um, pre-planned quietly nationwide, led by Nazi military, and they were accompanied by groups of civilians who were roaming the streets. They had someone go ahead, and any Jewish shop or business uh, was marked with paint. And then this crowd, who were already hyped up, followed. They began smashing windows or doors to any Jewish business they passed. They would um, enter it, ransack it, loot it, and if possible, sort of demolish it as far as possible. More than 7,000 Jewish businesses were destroyed that night. In addition, several hundred synagogues 
were also desecrated, and in some cases, when they were large enough to stand in their own grounds, at the end of the desecration, they were set on fire. There was one such synagogue not far from us, and although we couldn't see it from our window, we saw the flames rising above roof level when that synagogue was finally also burnt to the ground. Something quite remarkable happened. Uh, we lived in um, a multi-apartment um, multi-apartment block, which I think had six apartments. Two were occupied by Jewish families, we were one of them, and four by non-Jews. The one non-Jewish family I remember was um, a family called Dilling, and the husband was um, a policeman in the town of Kassel, employed by the civic authorities. And he and my father, over the years, had established a rapport that they were not personal friends, but friendly to each other. He appeared not to be a Nazi. And he met my father shortly before this Kristallnacht atrocity took place. And he apparently whispered to my father, my father told me afterwards, um, advised him to disappear for a little while. It would be in his interest. He wouldn't say more than that. I didn't know how much more he knew. And my father took his advice and did disappear. And one of the um, things that were associated with this Kristallnacht event was that the Nazis um, arrested around 30,000 Jewish men who were sent primarily to the Dachau concentration camp, which was already open and operating pre-war in, in Germany. They actually came to our house searching for my father. We said he wasn't in. They wouldn't take our word for it. They actually entered and searched through the apartment to make sure that he wasn't hiding. And they continued doing this. Jews were sort of picked up in the streets and their family never saw them again. They were sent to Dachau. When they had reached their target of 30,000, um, it eased and it was safe for my father to return. Well, that was November 1938. I, I would like to digress for a couple of minutes because as a result of feedback, um, it has become apparent to me that many, many people, including many Jews, are not really aware of the situation of the Jews in Germany, quite a proportion of people feel that the German, that the Jews were quite remiss in not leaving Germany faster than they did. When the Nazis gained power, apparently there were half a million Jews living in Germany. By 1939, six years after the Nazis came to power, there were still around 250,000 there. And the feeling is, that they should all have got out while they could. Well, it wasn't quite like that. The world was absolutely indifferent to Jewish persecution and suffering. The majority of countries had tightly shut borders and just didn't want to know. 
Several countries had annual visa quotas, but even these countries made it extraordinarily difficult to qualify for one of these visas. The USA, being at that time already the largest and uh, fairly prosperous country, um, was begun being criticized for not doing more to assist Jews leaving Germany. And I think in order to deflect criticism, they were the main initiators of an international conference called the Evian Conference, which was held in around June, I think, 1938 in France. And I believe 32 countries attended, and it was called to find ways to assist Jewish people who were being severely persecuted by then leave Germany to, to save themselves. Well, they, they spoke for two weeks. Each one individually was very sympathetic to the Jewish situation, but regretfully their country couldn't assist, but they hoped the other 31 would. So each one in turn expressed similar sentiments, and the end result was that practically nothing happened. In fact, although the Americans had an annual quota of 30,000, the requirements you had to meet in order to qualify were so difficult that in some years they didn't even issue the full quota of 30,000, because it was just impossible. My parents told me that they were on the waiting list for America, and on more than one occasion they felt that they had made good progress and were imminently expecting to receive visas when the American government, whichever department was responsible for this, uh, suddenly imposed new conditions, which meant further and further delay, and of course as a result they never made it, and that's why I'm here sitting with you as a Holocaust survivor. We also attempted to leave unsuccessfully and that applied to tens of thousands of Jews. In 1938 the Americans, I believe, had a waiting list of 300,000 and an official um, visa quota of 30,000. So, And by that, the way, when you were attempting to leave, did you have any sense, any vision of what the future was looking like? Nothing could be as frightening as remaining in Germany. Whatever the future, even if it was not easy or inviting, it was all relative. Jews clearly realized that their days in Germany or their lives in Germany were numbered. It was pretty self-evident by then. So the, everyone was desperately attempting to leave. In fact, many Jews, in desperation of wanting to leave Germany, paid professional smugglers to take them across the borders into adjoining countries which had land borders with Germany, like France, Belgium, Holland, and uh, Switzerland to a lesser extent because they made it harder to get across the border. Each one of these Jews, of course, felt that they had achieved their goal of escaping the Nazi grip Sadly, they were all mistaken because later in the war all these countries were occupied by the Nazis and consequently um, 
practically all these Jews who felt they had saved themselves were eventually rounded up and sent to the death camps and only a very small number managed to go into hiding or were fortunate and survived. But that was life in Germany. Jews were, were there not by choice but because it was desperately difficult to find any country that was willing to accept Jews. So I felt I needed to clarify that because I feel that it's, it's a serious misjudgment of um, the way Jews, many people feel, ought to have reacted to the way that it actually panned out. And I hope I've made it clear. Well, my father, as I said, managed to escape arrest on um, Kristallnacht, November 1938. But in the spring or so of 1939, he was arrested by the Nazis, who said that though he had lived in Germany for 20 years, and in fact he had given up his Polish nationality when he came to Germany, nevertheless they now considered him to be Polish and they were deporting him to Poland. They sent him to Poland by train. The Poles refused to accept him, sent him back to Germany. And after playing football two or three times, he was sent by train both ways. The Poles sending him back, the Nazis sending him back to Poland. Eventually, the Nazis said, we can't get you to Poland. You're going to be sent to a concentration camp. Well, my mother... Olea Scholem, quite courageously contacted the Nazi authorities and began pleading for my father's freedom. And eventually she was told that if your husband can show us an entry visa to another country, we'll permit him to leave. Otherwise, it's the concentration camp. She did the rounds trying to get a visa, but of course so did every other Jew by 1939, every Jew still in Germany was clamoring to get a visa to leave while they were still alive. And do you mind me just clarifying, why was your father more of an immediate target by the Nazis than you or your mother or siblings? In those days, they didn't um, molest the families, they concentrated on the males. Why? I have no idea why. That they were not deporting people to the camps en masse. That only came about years later. In those early days, this is the way they operated. It was the men they were persecuting. I mean, we were also persecuted in the sense that Jews were, by a string of laws passed ongoingly by the Nazi parliament, um, intermarriage was forbidden. All German Jews were deprived of their German nationality. All civil servants and scientists, Jewish teachers, were all dismissed. Eventually they passed a law that any Jew employed by a non-Jewish firm had by law to be dismissed. These non-Jewish firms were not permitted any longer to employ Jewish staff, no matter how important the position he occupied had to be dismissed. In addition, Jews were not allowed to run their own businesses, which made it, of course, economically disastrous for the Jewish population, in that it became more or less impossible for people to 
earn a living. There was hardship. We were also forbidden to enter any non-Jewish shop. And there were no Jewish shops any longer after Kristallnacht. They were all um, either destroyed or um, shut. In addition, they, of course, over the years began extorting Jewish uh, property. By 1938, I believe, if the statistic I saw is correct, close to two-thirds of Jewish businesses had changed ownership. The Jewish owner would be approached by the Nazis and he was offered a ridiculously low sum, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the true value of the business and asked to sign a sale contract transferring ownership to some Nazi they wanted to reward. And if the Jew wouldn't do it, or appeared reluctant, they would threaten him with dire consequences until eventually had to cave in and sign on the dotted line. And in that way, tens of thousands of Jewish businesses changed ownership, extorted for a tiny fraction of, of their value. And officially, the owner had signed the sale contract. So the Nazis could claim it, it, it was a sale that they weren't committing any crime, whereas in fact they did. Something I haven't told you, after that Kristallnacht, nationwide orgy, when there was an enormous amount of damage done to Jewish property, the Nazis fined the Jewish community communally in Germany one billion German marks for the damage caused. That they caused. The height of irony. The Jews were at the receiving end of the damage and they were fined for causing it. And you're how old in 1938? I was eight years old. You're eight years old. So you're old enough to perceive what's going on and take in the fact that German society is turning against the Jews. What, what is going through your mind? Are you, saying, are you thinking to yourself, where is this all coming from? By then, I had sort of grown up with it. I didn't remember any time when it wasn't like that. Right. As I told you, I was three years old. And it didn't take long for, for the propaganda, which began long before they gained power. Um, the Nazi propaganda minister, Goebbels, I believe once said publicly, perhaps it was a slip of the tongue, and, but he did say that he believed that any lie, no matter how vile or far-fetched, would be accepted as truth if it was repeated often enough. And they acted on that principle. And unfortunately, I believe he was correct. We're proving it again now. Our social websites are spewing out propaganda. And many, many thousands of people become convinced mm. because these media, the social media, are the only source of news. And if they hear the same lies and distortions, day after day after day, something sticks and eventually they become brainwashed. And that is the way they're taught to think and that's the way that they respond. So things haven't changed all that much, except that the media nowadays are m much, much more powerful. The Nazis could only have dreamt of a propaganda medium such as today's social websites. They had to do it the hard way by publishing anti-Jewish newspapers 
and do it the hard, slow way. Today it can happen much, much more effectively and faster. So I, I just knew that was a fact of life. Some good friends of ours who had family in America managed to leave late in 1938 and they promised my parents that they would do their utmost to try and find someone to, to speed up visas for us and they did their best. They were such good friends that they really meant what they said but it, there was no time for it to come to fruition. It was too, too difficult to speed up. And as a result my mother did the rounds, as I said, unsuccessfully, and eventually she went to the British consulate in Berlin and she spoke, told her heartbreaking dilemma to the chief passport officer. No one knew at the time, I can tell you now, that this passport officer um, was in fact an MI6 spy quite a, an effective spy, I have since found out, who had been given this as a, a cover, this passport position um, was his cover for his spying activities. But what the British government didn't realize that this man was a man with a heart and when on a more or less daily basis Jews came to him desperately attempting to save themselves by getting a visa he began to respond and he gave my mother a single visa enabling my father to go to the UK and he made her a promise that at the moment he was under such pressure that he couldn't do it but in a few weeks time he would issue visas to my mother and us two boys. I had a younger brother, four years younger than I, that we would be able to follow my father and be reunited in the UK. My father was actually reluctant to abandon his family, but my mother kept drumming into him. It's only for a matter of a few weeks, and he would be sent to the concentration camp otherwise. So eventually he hopped on a train. He was allowed to take one small suitcase and five marks in his pocket. And I remember us walking him to the railway station. And two weeks after he left, the war began. England and Germany were now at war with each other and of course our dream of following my father was shattered. We were now trapped in Germany, my father was in the UK. And as a result, for six years, my father had no idea of the fate of his family. We had one postcard from him uh, confirming his arrival in the UK and that was it. There was no further contact between us for, for all right through the war. Wow. So that must have been pretty agonizing for him. After the outbreak of war, um, we were permitted to remain in our apartment, but Jewish people who occupied more luxurious apartments, more often than not, were expelled from their apartment and forced to move into sort of a shabby apartment in, in a working-class area of, of Kassel. And these apartments were handed over to Nazi sympathizers as a reward for their support. So we got away relatively... We lived in a quite modest apartment. 
because we were not wealthy people, although my father earned a living. Um, there were very many restrictions on, on, on the Jewish population. As I said, we weren't allowed to enter any non-Jewish shop. And already before Kristallnacht, they would post um, Nazi military outside Jewish shops to discourage non-Jews doing business with Jewish people. So people's businesses began to deteriorate. We weren't allowed to own a radio any longer. We weren't allowed to have a bicycle even. Jews were put under a curfew during the hours of darkness. Um, we weren't allowed to go to the cinema, nor even enter a public park. We couldn't go to a public swimming pool. There were all sorts of restrictions on, on Jewish people. Um, in, in addition, um, Jews had to wear a yellow star on their outer garment, which meant that when we were out, we were easily recognizable, which of course encouraged um, sort of both verbal and physical assault periodically. If when we were out, a man in uniform came towards us, we had to step into the gutter and weren't allowed to mount the pavement until that person had gone past us. All sorts of um, restrictions of this manner. We had no income, of course. We, we lived on family savings. Often, the one shop in town at which we were permitted to buy our necessities didn't have enough in stock. And I remember one occasion when my mother did something, which when I tell you what it was, you'll realize how serious our situation sometimes was, food-wise. She asked me one day to come with her to the street corner opposite a non-Jewish bakery. And we weren't allowed to enter this shop because it was not one of the Jewish shops. The only one shop in town we were permitted to enter we stood on the opposite pavement. My mother asked me to put my school satchel over my yellow star. She gave me a sum of money and we re rehearsed. She said, we are watching this shop. When there's no one in the shop, I want you to run across, enter the shop, ask for a loaf of bread, put the money on the, dust, on the counter and run out again. And then she realized that I was fully aware of what she wanted me to do. This is what we actually did. When there was no one in the shop, I ran across, did as she told me. And at the time, I didn't fully understand, but in retrospect, you can imagine that no Jewish mother would risk their child in such a manner unless the position was pretty desperate. And that's how we obtained once or twice an extra loaf of bread because we couldn't get it from the Jewish shop. That's what the situation was like. We survived in this manner until in December 1941, there was a ring on our doorbell. Two of those um, Nazi soldiers had come, told us my mother had 10 minutes to pack a suitcase and they waited. We then had to accompany them, all three of us. My younger brother, who was four years younger, he was seven years old, I was 11 and my mother they walked us to the railway station where we met a crowd of Jews already assembled, each one accompanied by a suitcase. And eventually, when it had swelled to around 1,000 
souls. They packed us into a train and we set off on a journey into the unknown. They didn't tell us where they were taking us. But we traveled on this train for three days and nights. The, the train stopped. We were ordered out and we found that we were somewhere much colder than it had been. We had no idea where we were going. But it turned out that it had taken us to um, a town called Riga in Latvia, which is adjoining Russia, so it had been taken east. We were now surrounded by armed guards. They lined us up into a long column and we had to march through Riga town. Riga is the capital city of Latvia. And the Nazis, when they occupied Riga six months or so earlier, around the middle of 1941, um, they forced 30,000 Riga Jews, the Jewish population of Riga was around 30,000. All of them were compelled to leave their apartments and were housed in the Riga ghetto which they had built on the quick. It was a, a barbed wire fence surrounding a small section of Riga town and Jews were packed into these houses, 25 to 30 people in each house. People, families had to share a single room. It was grossly, grossly overcrowded. And after six months, around November 19. Uh, 41, the Nazis lied to these Riga Jews, telling them that they were being taken to another camp. Instead, they marched them in groups into a nearby forest. On the outskirts of Riga, there is a forest called the Rumbula Forest. In that forest, they had, by using slave labor, dug three enormous pits. And as each group of Jews came close, they were shot and they either fell into one of these pits or were thrown into one. And in a matter of, I believe, nine to ten days, they murdered all 30,000 Latvian Jews, Riga Jews, in fact. They permitted um, 30 young um, Latvian men <clears throat> to survive this massacre. All of them apparently had been selected because they were perfect German speakers and also young, strong men. And they were appointed internal camp police, known as Kapos, of the Riga ghetto, which was now being refilled with Jews deported from Germany, German Jews. So the Riga Jews were murdered, the camp was empty, and now transports of around a thousand at a time, like ours from Kassel, transports began arriving from other towns, Frankfurt, Hanover, Berlin, and so on. Um, and slowly the ghetto was being repopulated, and eventually it was crowded again with more than 30,000 uh, German Jews now. The day we arrived, we were put on a starvation diet. And the next day, we all had to assemble in the morning outside and we were addressed by an SS officer who told us that everyone over the age of 13 would be organized in groups and had to go out to work daily in factories in town 
under 13 could stay in the camp. He also told us that if we still possessed any money or valuables, they had to be handed over to some Nazi office. On pain of death, they gave us a seven-day ultimatum to do it. And if we were caught after that period with either in our possession, money or valuables, um, the penalty was death. They also told us that when people were going out to work, they realized that people would be desperate for something to eat, if not for themselves, at least for the children they had left behind in the camp. It was forbidden, on, again on pain of death, to bring any food back into the camp from work. People would attempt to barter, you know, some gold trinket, a chain or a ring for, for a loaf of bread just to bring, bring something back to help their children. But they uh, began taking people out of, at random from returning groups to body search them and if any food was found on them, the penalty was death. And in order to sort of terrorize us into obedience, um, I actually witnessed my first violent death due to such an event. We had come to the entry camp to the, of the camp early to await my mother's return. My little brother and I were waiting there. And the previous group had two people taken out to be body searched and they found some food hidden on the one, on the lady. And she was taken aside, lined up against the wall and shot. And that was my first violent death I witnessed. At how old? Nine? Eleven. Eleven. I was, I was eleven. My little brother was seven. He was with me. Now, what do you, what, how, you know, how do you feel at this moment? Well, it, it, it was a fact of life. You... you didn't bat an eyelid, kept quiet. Because the last thing you, you wanted to do was to draw attention to yourself. I remember my mother um, drilling it into me on a daily basis. She said, look, we are all in the same boat. I, I cannot protect you, but I can advise you. And my advice is that whatever you're asked to do, do to the best of your ability. Don't argue, don't hesitate. Try to be anonymous. Don't don't draw attention to yourself. And uh, I, this is how I acted. But you must be feeling utter terror. Yes, but that was that was life. We had been in the camp for several months by then. He also told us that we would no longer be known by name. Each one of us was given a number, which we had to remember. In Auschwitz, they tattooed it on the arm, but in other camps, who were also given numbers in many other camps, we had to remember our number, and it was needed on a daily basis. Every morning, we had to line up, and each one in turn had to shout out their number, and then this S-man would come along with a list and would tick these numbers in turn. That way, they made sure that everyone was there. I can tell you my number to this day, 56478. It, it'll never leave my memory because it was important to remember. If people forgot, and you had to shout it out every morning, but some people were nervous, didn't remember and jumbled up their number. Um, 
not always, but if the SS man was irritated by this, then he would order punishment, which consisted of some lashes from a whip. So it paid to commit one's number to memory in a way which she wouldn't forget it. Five, six, four, seven, eight. I will recite it in my sleep without any effort. That, that was life in the camps. I don't know how much time I can spend. I'm trying to go through three and a half years in the camps in, in probably one hour. I'm not sure how successful I'll be, but I, I feel I, I must speed up somewhat. I would like to tell you briefly just what happened. Um, I told you I attended the Jewish primary school. Among our group of 1,000 deported from our town in Kassel, there was one person who had been a teacher in that Jewish primary school, and he knew me, he had taught me as a little boy there. And after my 12th birthday, he came up to me and he said, I know your father's not with you, you know, your bar mitzvah is coming up. Would you like me to help you prepare for your bar mitzvah? I, I really barely knew what, what, what he meant. How could we celebrate a bar mitzvah in the camp? But being a good boy, and this was a teacher I respected, I said, yes, please, and he did. One of the things that I haven't made clear is when the Riga Jews were forced to transfer from their homes into the ghetto, it was just a short walk for many of them. They'd lived in town. They just Riga was not a vast town. So among a community of 30,000 Jews, there were quite a number of rabbis. And many of these rabbis, uppermost in their thoughts, they didn't know where they were going, what they were letting themselves in for, took a Sefer Torah with them. So there were quite a number of Sefer Torah and also holy books in, in the ghetto. When they were led to their deaths in, in that Rambula forest, they were not, not permitted to take anything. It was all left behind. We were housed in the same accommodation that they had been, so we found all their possessions there, including Sifri Torah. So he had managed to get hold of one, and um, he had to calculate in his head which would be my bar mitzvah portion, which was a year ahead. He had no Jewish calendar. And when he, when he had decided which one it would be, he began teaching me uh, from the uh, parsha, which he thought would be my bar mitzvah one. Which was? Tzav. Tzav. Yes. And when he found that I learned quite quickly, he began teaching me more, and eventually he taught me the whole uh, sedra of Tzav and, and uh, Haftorah as well. And remarkably, although I had never heard or witnessed um, a religious service in the camp since we had arrived more than a year earlier, uh, on that Shabbat, he had, everyone had to go out to work, but he managed to produce nine adult males. And I was counted as number 10, quite proud of the fact at the time. And we had a religious service, traditional service, with a Sefer Torah, and I did all the laning. There was no celebration. We, didn't have a kiddush after, I can promise you. 
but um, it, it was a remarkable experience. I didn't fully experience just what he had uh, appreciate, I mean, what he had done for me. In retrospect, I, I realized that it was an astounding um, gesture on his part. But And on your part? Yes, I, I was the recipient of this. I searched for him actually after the liberation. I didn't find him. I've since found out that in 1944 he was sent to Auschwitz and he was murdered. But that, that was an abiding experience in, in the Riga ghetto. That was in, um, I remember the Bar Mitzvah day, 27th of March, 1943. And that was Pausch's He made me lane. Um, in August, of 1943, um, during morning assembly, numbers were called out, and each one, each number had to step forward, and it included my mother, my little brother, and I. And this group of us were packed into cattle trucks, going from Germany to the Riga ghetto. We were still traveling in a passenger train, grossly overcrowded, but still a passenger train. But within the camp, once we reached the first camp, Riga, I was in a total of five camps. Each time we were transported from camp A to camp B to camp C, it was by cattle truck. And we were packed 80 to 100 people tightly into one of these wagons. The door was locked. No matter how long the journey took, uh, we never received either food or drink. Uh, for sanitation, sanitary purposes, sometimes there was one bucket in the, the wagon, sometimes not even that. People fainted, but there was no help, nothing to be done. If anyone died, in our case, he just lay there until we reached our destination and we were ordered out. The doors were never opened, and it took much longer to come to go from camp to camp, because the Nazis <coughs> um, needed the railway system. It was pri prioritized for military traffic. About eighty percent of all military transportation, uh, ammunition, re reinforcements, food, arms supplies were all sent by train. So when we were in these cattle trucks being sent from camp A to camp B, frequently um, we were shunted onto a siding and stood there for hours at a time to keep the line clear for military traffic to take priority before we continued our journey. So our trips, which strictly speaking should only have taken hours, took days without any sustenance on the way, of course. And on reaching our destination, we found we were taken to a labor camp called Brechu. This was camp number two. And as it was a labor camp, it was a type of camp where if you couldn't labor, you lost your right to live. We had four young children still with us. My, mo my little brother, who was now nine, he was seven when he was taken, but now it was nine, 
and three other little ones, even younger than he, they were permitted to stay in the camp. I was then 13. I was 11 when I was taken, now 13. I was considered strong enough to be part of the labor force. So my mother and I were ordered into the same labor gang. Many people that marched out to work in factories. And incidentally, we found out that many of these factories, which were conveniently close to many of the larger camps, weren't there by chance. The Nazis had managed to persuade German industrialists to erect factories close by on the promise that they would have unlimited supplies of slave labor. And that persuaded them that it was a profitable proposition and that so these factories came to be built. We, my mother and I, were part of a labor force of around 300 who did not work in the factory. We were marched out to an area not far from our camp, which was a very, very busy railway junction. And the Allies, by 1943, had realized that this railway system was vital to the Nazi war effort and had begun bombing. Not randomly the railway system, but I think they concentrated on busy interjunctions. And this was one such vital interjunction which was used by military trains supplying the Eastern Front. As the Nazis depended on the railway system to reinforce their fighters, they used us, this group of 300, to repair the damaged railway system. We had to dig up the bomb-damaged rails, fill in bomb craters and prepare the ground, and eventually um, we had to carry replacement rail uh, lengths uh, from the point where they were stored to where they were needed and make the line serviceable again by laying new tracks. Because it was sometimes quite a distance we had to carry these rails from where they were stored to where they were needed, um, they posted guards along the, the route to keep an eye on us, and they were bored, and they devised a very cruel entertainment for themselves. They armed themselves with long wooden sticks into the top end of which they had nailed a sharp nail, and as we passed by, they lashed out with these sticks at us and uh, injured people by sort of lacerating skin when, when they, they actually hit us to make us walk or run faster with these heavy rails on our shoulders. And it was torture, but there was nothing one could do. We just had to get past them as fast as we could. But they were dotted along the route, so you encountered more than one such attack. That, that was life in, in that camp. And fortunately, I was soon transferred from, from that work to do different work, which was in a small foundry. Among the replacement rails which had to be laid, there were some special parts. It was of a, a complex layout, 
and you needed one-off parts for the repair. And this was the workshop where these one-off pieces were manufactured. So I was trained by someone who uh, already knew what to do. And after a while, I worked on my own. And a remarkable act of kindness was my experience there. There were just two or three German guards in, inside that foundry just to, to watch us, to keep an eye on us. And one of them indicated to me um, that I ought to look at the drawer. When I opened the drawer, I found there was a sandwich in there. Of course, I grabbed it and it was gone in seconds. I couldn't thank him because I realized that this was something extraordinary. He, he obviously wasn't allowed to do it. But a few days later, he did it again. Several times I received sandwiches from him until one day he just wasn't around. He was, he'd disappeared. I don't know whether he'd been caught or whether he'd been transferred to somewhere else or promoted. I, I have no idea, but that was the end of uh, my bounty of the occasional sandwich. But it was remarkable. It was a, a German guard. We didn't exchange any thanks for it, but he, he did it repeatedly. I can find no plausible explanation, except perhaps that he was a family man. He might have had children of his own. I was quite young. I was 13, just going on for 14. and. It might have uh, pulled his heartstring, and uh, he succumbed and did that for me. But uh, I feel I ought to mention it because it, it, it's so extraordinary. Well, we had been in this camp for only a few weeks when we came home from work and these four children could not be found. Previously, each day we came back from work Children were there and we were reunited. On this day, there were no children there. Everyone in that camp had to work, apart from a handful of people who worked in a barrack, which was known as the kitchen, the camp kitchen. They stayed in the camp to prepare some food for us when we returned from our day's work. And one of them told us that that day, two SS men had come into the camp said they had orders to take these children away and had done so. And they had disappeared off the face of the earth. In the camp, of course, there was no provision for mourning. The following morning, my heartbroken mother and I both had to line up at the usual time to go to work as though nothing had happened. She wasn't allowed to mourn the loss of her young little son. Post-war, we began searching via search organizations who had access to German records. But initially I was convinced that some miracle had happened and we would meet again, particularly as infrequently, but sometimes you would read of a miraculous reunion of two survivors who each thought the other was dead and somehow through extraordinary circumstances that they met and were reunited. And I kept thinking, if it happens to them, why can't it happen to us? 
but over time, my optimism, so my being convinced that it would happen, turned into wishful thinking, and I refused to give up for quite a long time, until eventually, years and years and years later, I had to admit that it was highly unlikely, wishful thinking on my part. And um, all these years, I refused to say a memorial prayer for my brother because I was so sure that somehow or other he, he would still be alive and he was old enough to know our names, his name, and I thought somehow we would experience a reunion, but I'm afraid that day has long been and gone. Do you know what his fate was, as in where he ended up? We have no idea, not a word. We have not found, despite searching repeatedly um, via people who have access to Nazi records, not a word has been found. What was his name? His name was Hermie. Hermie? Hermie. Well, his, his uh, sort of passport name was Hermann, but he was universally known as Hermie, his sort of pet name. Well, in this camp, we were there for more or less exactly one year. And just before we were moved to another camp, we had an extraordinary experience there, which I tell you fairly briefly. Um, it was not the first one, but it was uh, an experience known as a selection. Selection meant that instead of, of appearing on every morning for an assembly and being sorted out for work. You had to stand there and in groups we were led into a hall. We had to shuffle single file forward to meet an SS officer at the far end. Each one of us in turn had to stand in front of the officer. He would glance at each person quite cursorily for a second or two and point left or right. At our first selection, we had no idea of the significance of this left or right. And sometimes when parents were pointed one way and children, even adult children, were pointed the opposite direction, um, those youngsters begged the SS man to send them in the same direction as their parents because people were naive and didn't realize that effectively they were asking to commit suicide, because that's what happened. It soon became apparent that all elderly and infirm people were pointed one way and young, strong people the opposite direction. Well, but this um, selection was different to one we had previously, in that as we entered the hall, we were ordered to strip naked, and then we had to shuffle forward naked to face the SS officer. As I was shuffling towards him, a man behind me whispered to me, if he asks you your age, say you're 17. We weren't allowed to speak to each other, so he took a chance and whispered quite quietly, but I heard him. And as I stood in front of the SS man, he asked me that question. It was extraordinary, as though that man behind me had had a premonition, or as we say in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh. Um, I sometimes think of him as, as an angel sent to, to save me because in response to the assessment's question, as I had been prompted by this man behind me, I replied 17. 
and he pointed me in the direction of those surviving this selection, although I'd only just passed my 14th birthday. And I don't know his fate. He was behind me, so I don't know which way he was pointed. I, I didn't see him again. To this day, I, I'm not sh sure, but feel that I might well owe my life to him for, for answering 17, because I found out since that apparently these SS people had been instructed to consider 17 up um, to be the age at which uh, people are considered to be so profitable slave laborers. And that was the object of the exercise. The only reason they allowed us to live was to exploit us as laborers. And why were they stripping you all naked? I have no idea why, but we never received our clothing back. As I was pointed in the direction of those surviving, I had to leave the hall and assemble with a group of survivors outside, still naked. My mother was some distance behind me. I had no idea what her fate was, which way she had been pointed, except that very soon after I reached my group of survivors, the group who had been condemned were assembling not far from us, out in the open. Both groups were still naked and there were guards around. But quite spontaneously, a small group of people from the condemned side suddenly began racing across towards us to mingle among us to try and save their lives. The guards were a bit slow to react. They were taken by surprise. They stopped any more people running across and then they came to our side and began searching for people who had run across. Of course, they had difficulty recognizing people. Some were easily recognizable if someone was disabled that they could see it. If they were elderly, they couldn't really hide that. But it was while this was going on, I suddenly realized that my mother had been one of those who had raced across and she was hiding on our side and she was not recognized, and she stayed on our side. And in that manner, that day, she was one of maybe a handful. Maybe she was the only one, maybe not, I have no idea. But she saved her life that day, wow. and she remained alive long enough to be liberated together with me nearly a year later. Wow. Wow. Days after th this selection, very few days later, we were packed into cattle trucks and sent off again into the unknown. We were never ever given a destination. And we ended up in a concentration camp called Stutthof. Stutthof um, was initially built as quite a small camp. There were no Jews housed in Stutthof initially. <coughs> it was built to house German non-Jewish anti-Nazis um, homosexuals, gypsies, and they also began housing prisoners of war and also Polish partisans, resistance fighters, who they caught, all in Stutthof, no Jews. The camp was opened in 1939, September 39, when the war began, that camp was built already. Um, at the end of 1941 and uh, 42, um, they 
expanded the camp, they tripled it in size, and at the same time as they built all these new barracks and extended the fence around the camp, they also built a gas chamber and a crematorium into Stutthof. So it now had mass extermination facilities, which it didn't have initially. And now they began sending Jews into Stutthof, and they were housed primarily <clears throat> in the new camp, which was twice as large as the original, so it was tripled in size. And they began using, of course, the extermination facilities. And we were considered extraordinarily lucky when we were sent to Stutthof because it became known within days that we, this group of 300, were in Stutthof in transit, that we would be sent to another camp. And in fact, even in those days, back in, in 19, this was um, August 1943, um, the entrance gate of Stutthof, you know, the Auschwitz entrance gate is infamous for the um, phrase it had up there, Arbeit macht frei, ironically. Um, the Stutthof entrance gate was known as the death gate because once you entered Stutthof through that gate, it was effectively a sentence of death. Very, very few people left Stutthof alive. So it became known that we would be leaving Stutthof alive. We were being sent to another labor camp. So people envied us. And in fact, there was an attempt made to dislodge some of the 300 and replace them with inmates who had some sort of influence as their way of leaving Stutthof alive. Um, it, it's too long, too long a story to, to tell you, but um, it didn't happen. We'd be left the same people as we came in, but there was a risk that some would be exchanged and left behind. We were there for nearly four weeks, put into cattle trucks, and sent to another busy railway junction, a camp just close to the second railway junction, where we were put out to do the same work. And we realized why they had allowed us to live, because we had by now, after one year's experience, become a valuable labor source. The Nazis needed those railway lines to work efficiently for military purposes, and we had now had quite a bit of experience, so they kept on exploiting us. We didn't get any better food. We were still on uh, starvation rations because Jewish lives were worthless. Anyone who died or was murdered was replaced by other slave laborers that there was no shortage, apparently. So <clears throat> we were now doing the same work in this second camp. And this time, we, we were part of the labor force. The hunger and cold was really indescribable. I cannot find words to make people understand what effect um, starvation has on someone. It takes over one's mind completely. The messages from your 
stomach craving for some the bite of food take over your mind and it's hard to think of anything else but where can I find a scrap of food? People began chewing inedible things just to, to pretend to have something to, to try and fool one's stomach. <laughs> that if, if your teeth were moving, it meant that there was something on the way. It, it was unbelievable. One gets close to being ready to commit murder in order to, to get hold of a scrap of food. And this was on a daily basis for three and a half years, from the day we were taken until the day of our liberation. I, I cannot think of any effective way of, of making people realize it's not like the sort of tarnas, we have fast days, <coughs> or you may get up late <coughs> and um, not have breakfast and you're hungry for lunch. It, it's not that sort of hunger. It's, it's in a different category, which, as I said, t takes over one's mind. Well, part of helping people understand, do, do you know how much you weighed after years of this? No, I don't. I don't. But it affected people differently. People seem to have different metabolisms. Some people, somehow the body could um, adjust better. And although everyone, there were no fat people around, everyone was thin as a stick, but some people were literally living skeletons that they just consisted of bones covered by skin. Mm. Flesh, the body as such, had more or less disappeared. And other people were just the very thin human beings who still managed to function. And that was why they were left alive. In fact, when people worked in factories, the guards who escorted these groups to the fact from the camp to the factories stayed all day long. And they were primed to keep an eye on people as they worked. And if they discovered anyone who, due to starvation or sickness, um, was not able to, to work as satisfactorily as they expected in return for the keeping us alive. Um, they would be taken to an execution site and shot and replaced by people who had a bit more strength. That, that was the routine. The objective was to keep us alive as long as possible, exploit any strength and it, when we lost your strength beyond a certain point when they felt it wasn't worth keeping you alive, that then they, they murdered you. Your life was ended. That, that's how the system worked. In this second camp, um, what happened was that military trains, more often than not, just roared through the uh, complex um, junction. But sometimes trains stopped and trains were reconfigurated. Wagons were taken off one train and maneuvered onto another and so on. And sometimes these trains stopped for hours while they were being made ready to continue their journey. And a rumor went around the camp that some of these wagons contained food destined for German soldiers. And one day a group of inmates driven by this hunger I've tried to describe to you, broke the seal on one of these wagons and searched and found some food. And of course, 
they grabbed it and gulped it down. When the Nazis saw what had happened, they raided our camp in revenge and took away eight men who they said were the guilty ones, but I have my doubts that, that, that they couldn't really find out, but they took away eight more or less as hostages. And instead of what would normally happen, them being taken away to be shot, this time <clears throat> they ordered some inmates to build a large gallows with eight nooses. And one day we were all stopped from going to work. We had to assemble around this large gallows and we had to watch these eight men being led out one by one and hanged. And additionally, armed guards patrolled among us and if they caught anyone closing their eyes or, or turning their heads away, they would rifle butt us and threaten us that if we didn't keep our eyes on this gruesome spectacle, we might be the next ones to swing up there. That, that is one very powerfully abiding memory that stayed with me over the years. I, I don't even have to close my eyes to, to mentally see that image even now, a lifetime later. You watched eight people successively be, be hung? Yes, not together. They were led out one by one, and each one was hung separately, hanged separately. Yeah. Days after this, we were packed into cattle trucks again and sent to our next camp. No reason was given, no name was given, we were just packed in, we didn't know how long we would be in there. And this time we were packed in so tightly that it wasn't possible to crouch or, or, or sort of sit, sit down. We all had to stand, we were really packed so that anyone who fainted or even died remained upright because of pressure of adjoining bodies. And in this manner we were taken to the next camp. We were unloaded. Anyone who had died was removed and taken away. On the very first morning, we had the usual morning assembly, and there was an SS officer going along with a list of numbers, and we all had to shout out our numbers, and he would tick. <clears throat> I could see, as he approached me, he kept glancing at me. I couldn't help noticing, and I began to feel extremely nervous particularly after my mother had drilled into me, never be noticed. I realized that he had noticed me. And as he came up to me, he just glanced at me and said, when everyone else is dismissed, you stay. And then he went off. <coughs> Eventually everyone was dismissed, organized into groups and go to work. And I stood there as he had ordered me. Eventually he returned, looked at me, and said, follow me. He took me into um, a large purpose-built um, sort of apartment block, which turned out to be accommodation for the SS. And he took me into a small apartment, which was his living quarters. <coughs> and he gave me a long list of things I had to do. I became his personal servant or slave, call it what you will. 
I, I had to wash the floor of his apartment, I had to make his bed, I had to wash his breakfast things, I had to tidy things up, I had to brush all his many uniforms, I had to polish each pair of knee-length boots he had, and he had lots of them, um, and I had to wash all the common parts, floors in the whole building. I trembled as, as I worked, because I realized he was an officer who wore a pistol on, on his belt, and they had total power over all the inmates. Jewish lives didn't count. I, I felt that if I did anything which didn't please him, <clears throat> there was nothing if he felt inclined to pull out his gun and uh, get rid of me or hand me over to someone who would do it for him. So I, of course, wanted to do the very best. I wanted as near perfection as I could. And at the same time, I wasn't sure whether I would succeed. Well, I, I lived under these, um, this tension for three weeks when one morning just three weeks after we arrived, <clears throat> we were lined up and packed into cattle trucks. Did this um, daily torture lasted a mere three weeks, but it, it's imprinted in my mind, I promise you. They took us again to an unknown destination, which turned out to be the same camp of Stuttorf, the camp which now had its crematorium and uh, gas chamber. The camp was now packed. I believe that its capacity was meant to be 25,000 and there were more than 50,000 people there. So we were allocated a barrack where we had to sleep at least two of us in one of these bunk beds. No one worked. We were just wandering around. It was the end of 1944. The camp was no longer run as a sort of a tight ship as it had been before. Um, for instance, um, we, we had to line up for our daily bit of food, which was usually a ladle full of, um, sort of watery soup of some sort. We were given a tin can, no spoons, we had to drink it from the can. Um, it was mainly liquid and the solids it had were not, for instance, potatoes, it was potato peel. I think they must have had a regular supply of potato peel from German army camps. Instead of throwing it to the pigs, they were sending it to our camp and it was used in preparing food for us. And outer leaves of cabbages were found in there, potato peel, that sort of thing. And as a special treat, sometimes smelly fish heads. Presumably the Nazis had fish, they cut off the heads and sent them to us, and by the time they reached us, they were no longer quite fresh. There wasn't enough food frequently, so people were desperately trying to get into the queue. If they realized if they took their place at the back, there might not be any food for them. So there were daily fights, people trying to get ahead. And in my case, there was an additional risk. When I finally received my ladle full of um, sustenance for the day, I had to gulp it down as quickly as I could because 
in addition to not being enough food, there weren't enough tin cans. So people were scouting around. If they were decent, they would wait until the person had finished their little bit of uh, soup and then take the can. But I was only a, a youngster, a child, who couldn't really fight back. So sometimes they would come along and try and grab it from me before I'd finished my Russian. So I, I realized I couldn't really fight them. I wasn't their equal. I had to gulp it down on the double in order to make sure that it would end up in my tummy, not, not in someone else's. So that, that was life in Stuttgart. In addition, trainloads of Jews from the eastern camps. The Nazis, when they were retreating, um, tried their best not to allow Jewish survivors to fall into Allied hands. In addition to blowing up the gas chamber and crematorium in each camp in the east, there were several camps there which were nearly as bad as Auschwitz. Treblinka was one. Um, they blew up the gas chamber and the crematorium to destroy evidence. And they didn't have time to murder all these Jews, so they packed them into trains, cattle trucks, and sent them to camps deeper into Germany, which did have these facilities, primarily uh, in our area. It was Auschwitz and Stutthof on a smaller scale. So trainloads of Jews arrived in Stutthof, and there appeared to be no logic to it. Some trainloads of Jews were checked into the camp. Quite meticulously, they had to face someone at a desk who would fill in uh, a registration form with their details before they were allowed into the camp, which by that time just meant a slower death by starvation. And some were taken straight from the train, bypassing the camp, straight to the gas chamber to be murdered. So some died the day they arrived and some were checked into the camp. I have no idea how they decided which train load would go in which direction, but it happened repeatedly and quite a number of Jews. In addition, each person, as they marched to the gas chamber before they entered, had to take off their shoes and throw them onto a pile. And when Stutthof was um, liberated, there was an enormous pile of more than 100,000 pairs of shoes. A photograph was taken by a Russian soldier and more often than not <clears throat> when I give testimony talks particularly to school children mainly the older ones the higher grades I show them this photograph to try and help them appreciate what scale of calamity we are talking about when you talk about hundreds of thousands or millions as we do it, it's really a meaningless figure and I like to think that when they look at this heap of shoes, I tell them to imagine that each pair of shoes represents a human being who minutes after they were thrown there, lost their lives in, in a gas chamber. And I, I feel that is perhaps an effective way of making people realize just what we are speaking about. Both my mother and I were in Stuttgart concentration camp but we were in separate camps. The 
women's camp adjoined the men's camp but was separated from it by a barbed wire and there was no contact. While we were working, it was not in our power to ensure that my mother and I would work for the same gang, labor gang, but that happened to be the case, which of course meant that we could exchange a few words during the day and each one saw the other. But now in Stutthof, when we returned the second time at the end of 1944, we didn't go out to work, so I had no contact with my mother. Um, we weren't allowed to approach the fence between the two camps. There was a guard tower with an armed uh, soldier in it, and if you came too close to the fence, he would threaten you and point the gun at you. So I often went to that fence, but some distance back. And my mother had a similar idea. This was not by arrangement because we hadn't seen each other. Um, she had a similar idea and sometimes we would catch a glimpse of each other. All we could really ascertain that the other was still alive. We weren't allowed or couldn't have a conversation. We were too far from the fence, but it wasn't safe to come closer because the, the, the guard was liable to, to shoot at us. So each of us knew that the other was alive. We managed to survive until April 1945. On the, 20th, on the morning of the 26th of April 1945, um, numbers were read out again, including my number, 556478, five, um, and each person had to step forward, and eventually they had selected around 2,000 or so men, and what I didn't know at the time, they did exactly the same in the women's camp. Eventually we were lined, into a long, lined up into a long column and under armed as escort, we were marched out of Stutthof. No one said what was happening, where we were going, nothing said, just march. And there were these armed SS accompanying us. And as we left the camp, we saw that a similar column emerged from the ladies' camp, both marching in the same direction, and eventually the two groups merged and it became one long column, mixed men and women. And of course, uppermost in my mind was, is my mother walking, marching in this column or was she left behind? And she likewise had no idea whether I was with that march or I had been left behind. So we each began searching through the column. These SS guards were barbaric. We, of course, were all starved, weak, and they set a fair pace for this march. They were young, well-fed individuals, and anyone who couldn't keep pace but began trailing behind was immediately shot, and their bodies just left where they fell. So I was working my way through the column, searching for my mother. My mother searched for me, and it seemed to take an eternity but eventually we did find each other. We both were marching and of course we were overjoyed. We had no idea what our fate was intended to be, uh, but whatever it would be, we would share it. At least we would be together. Well, we
we marched for hours and many people lost their lives by not having the strength to keep going, including a good friend of mine. I, I won't digress now, but I, I don't know whether you've ever heard of someone called Ziggy Schipper. Yes. Well, he's the friend I refer to. And he, he's been going around telling people that I saved his life that day because he had already contracted typhus. So in addition to being extremely weak, he was also suffering from typhus. And at one point during the march, um, he said to me, Manfred, I, I, I can't walk another step. I'm going to sit down. I said, Ziggy, if you sit down, you're dead. I, I can't. I, I don't care. I cannot walk. I said, no, Ziggy, we won't let you. And I put my arm around him and I kept dragging him along. And then someone else who saw I was struggling helped. So between the two of us, we kept him going. It was a pure chance because I was searching for my mother. I found Ziggy and we stuck together, of course. We went searching for my mum together. Eventually, I found my mother. We stopped at a small port. There were four barges lined up and they packed us into these four barges. Then four boats turned up. There were armed SS guards were they on, on board these. They coupled themselves to these four barges and told us to see. <clears throat> I found out since that they told us to see because all the roads were already blocked further down the road by the Allies approaching. So they tried to get us out of the camp by sea. Each day the convoy stopped, an SS officer appeared at the top, looked down and selected more than 20 of us randomly. Each in turn had to be dragged up on deck and were thrown alive into the sea. We could just hear the scream and splash. So he murdered 25 or so people daily. With a smirk on his face, he said, we're using too much fuel towing you. At the end of six days, these um, SS-manned um, boats uncoupled themselves from us and left us mid-sea. We had on our barge, as part of our group of inmates, some um, prisoners of war. They had been fed a better diet than Stutthof and they had more strength. They clambered on deck and said we were quite, quite close to the shore. And they decided that they would try and get the barge to shore. They prized loose some long wooden planks, formed themselves as a rowing team around the barge and began using these as oars to try and move the barge. It didn't seem credible, but they persevered and eventually it began to respond at a very, very slow pace. They rowed until they were exhausted. Other people took their place. The rowing took place all day long, into the night and through most of the night before we ran aground. Anyone who still had an ounce of strength clambered up on deck. It was a very dark night, but we realized you had to jump into the water and wade ashore. Many people on the barge by then, we had been on the barges for six days, without a scrap of food or a sip of water, nothing, nothing was given to us. So we weren't exactly well fed before, but many people had reached the point where they were barely alive, that their minds had ceased functioning. They just sat there in a stupor 
and didn't take any notice of people clambering up and jumping. They just remained seated, awaiting their fate. We jumped. I was scared. My mother encouraged me, so we jumped, waded ashore. It was a very dark night. We couldn't see any habitation, just lots of sandy seashore. We had no idea whether to run left, right. We were sort of perplexed. What do we do next? And while we were pondering on this, these Nazi boats returned. And they, of course, were livid seeing what we had done. Part of them boarded the barge and we heard shooting. Everyone who stayed on the barge was shot. The other lot came ashore, rounded us up, and we thought our turn was next. But they lined us up as a group, marching. At daylight was beginning to come back, and we marched along. Eventually we saw a tank column coming towards us. And as they came closer, these Nazi guards, who moments earlier had just still been shooting Jews who couldn't keep up with the pace, suddenly turned and ran as fast as they could in the opposite direction. And as the, these tanks came closer, we realized that they were Allied tanks, that were British tanks. We were now unguarded, but remarkably the tanks did not stop. They had a destination they had been given to reach, and they had liberated us purely by traveling along the same route as we were marching. They scared our guards, and we were now left unguarded. But the tanks went on, and initially there was jubilation among us. I, I can't describe to you what the turmoil of joy. But as the tanks disappeared, we began to be apprehensive. Maybe the Nazis would come back now, and we would continue. But minutes later, truckloads of British soldiers appeared. They handed out food and drink and let us rest. And eventually they took us um, into a nearby town. So we were free. Both my mother and I were taken to hospital. We suffered from typhus. Um, eventually, um, I was released. My mother had been released already. But they said that I, in particular, needed a period of um, convalescence. So they sent us to a convalescent home. And while we were at the convalescent home, we were interviewed by a welfare officer who asked whether we wanted to get in touch with anyone in the world. We said, my, my father is in the UK, we don't know where. He said, don't worry, we'll track him down. They did. It took three months or so before we made contact. My father applied for permission. And it took a year, it wasn't until September 46, that we received permission to join my father. Um, it was a bittersweet reunion. I hadn't seen my father for seven years. Um, he was a stranger to me. And of course, in addition, we weren't a complete family any longer. We had lost uh, my little brother. And in addition to that, of course, both my father and my mother had lost all their extended family. They all lived in Poland, and they had all been rounded up when the Nazis occupied Poland, sent to the death camps, and not one of more than 80 people survived. So we had no relations left. We were the sole survivors of our family. Well, my father was a pauper when we arrived, but nevertheless, my, my mother insisted that somehow they had to find money to give me a chance to have some private education. 
I was already past school leaving age in the UK, so it had to be done privately. My parents enrolled me in, in um, a tutorial college. I attended for three terms and I learned quite a lot. I had seven years missed schooling from the time the Jewish school was closed in Germany when I was not yet nine years old and now I was 16. There had been no schooling. And you would have had to learn English. I had to learn, I did learn English. Something very fortunate occurred. Within days of my arrival in the UK, we found out that the local Jewish school was organizing an English course, a crush course for foreigners, for refugees. So I applied and I was accepted and I, I learned very quickly. I, I learned English in a matter of three months or so. I could speak fairly fluently. And then I went to this um, um, tutorial college for a year. And then I didn't have the heart to do it any longer because my parents really couldn't afford the fees. That they really stopped living effectively to, to give me that opportunity. So I refused after a year. I began taking dead-end jobs, but I realized soon that, that there was no future in that. So I wanted to become an electrician. I became an electrician's mate and began learning the trade of becoming an electrician. But after a while, I realized that it wasn't very stimulating. Once you'd learned the basics, it was very repetitive and just hard work moving furniture, lifting floorboards, you had to lay cables under the floor and so on. And I began saying, I wanted something a little more stimulating. And I said, yes, of course, you, you can stay in the electrical field, which is what interested me. Uh, by going to university, you'll be taught um, sort of in a different manner and it'll be much more stimulating. But when I applied, they refused me a place because I didn't have the qualifications. So I took time off, went to a technical college, did the course necessary, then I was accepted. And I spent three years um, doing a, a degree course in electronics. And I graduated as an electrical electronic engineer. And that became my livelihood. Um, I eventually sort of settled down. I worked in Manchester for a while, and there was a lovely Jewish community there, very friendly and warm. So I, I began making friends. Eventually I moved back home, lived at home again with my parents. And um, my parents, particularly my mother, kept saying, no, no, what about settling down? And eventually I felt I was earning enough to so consider a family. So I married. This is the first part of the story I can relate to. <laughs> yes. I married a wonderful young lady. And we've been married next month. It'll be 62 years. Wow, mother's Thank you. And as I said, we have four children. We have had much joy from our children, grandchildren, and we hope very shortly, at the end of this month, we're going to Israel, where one of our boys is happily married with three children. And a grandson has also made Aliyah, and they're expecting their first child, which will be our <gasps> first great-grandchild. Wow. So we're going at the end of this month. Oh, wow. The birth is imminent.
And uh, thank God we, we have um, lived a happy life. I can tell you when I first came to this country, I thought I was literally living in, in paradise, in Gan Eden. It was the first experience I had of normality when I was of an age where I could appreciate it. I was now 16. Um, I, I found that the, the English people to, to be a wonderful people, that they were kind, appreciative, tolerant. And I began blessing the experience of being permitted to live in this country, and it hasn't changed. I'm grateful to this day for having been permitted to live my life in total freedom. And tell us briefly about your interactions with the royal family. Um, initially, when I came here, people did not really want to hear about us, and I couldn't bring myself to speak about it. I was a member of a local shul here. <clears throat> we had one annual Holocaust memorial meeting at which they asked a survivor to speak of their experiences. And I was asked year after year, and I always refused. I could not imagine myself standing there speaking about it. The memories were deeply engraved in my mind. And I can tell you now in retrospect, as I'm an old man, they, they seem to be in a different part of my mind, which is not affected by age. Because things which happened to me much, much more recently are fading, but these Holocaust experiences have remained clear in my mind. It took a long time. I was on the point of refusing again, being asked to speak in our synagogue, when to a combination of circumstances, my wife was fairly instrumental. She made me feel guilty. Um, in a moment of madness, I said, yes, I will speak. But then I regretted it, but having given my word, I did. And that was the very first time I spoke publicly. And, and why course, didn't you want to? What was the reason? I just could not face, not even to my own family, who, who knew my, my background. They knew I'd been in the camps, but I didn't know any details as such. I don't know whether I can really explain it, but that there was a blockage. It was inconceivable to me that I would stand in front of an audience actually relating what I've been speaking about to you. But eventually I, I, I did it, and it was a very, very traumatic experience. As the date approached, I had sleepless nights. At night I had visions of what I had gone through, bring it all to the forefront of my mind to speak about it. And then after the talk, it took me time to settle down again. But once my name was in the public domain, of course, I was approached by other synagogues to speak to them. And so it continued until once when I spoke to some adults, um, the organizer was a young, very dynamic lady uh, who said that I, I've had about a dozen survivors speak to me, but you speak differently. You, you have a logical mind, you don't jump around as some of them do, and you have little accent, you, you speak clearly, you, you must begin speaking to non-Jewish audiences. I said, it's unthinkable to me, I, I've, but she insisted, and she passed my name on to the Holocaust Educational Trust. Um, they sent someone to my house, and she was a very persuasive lady, 
And even at my age, I find it difficult to say no to charming, attractive ladies. So by the end of her effort to get me to talk, I had agreed to accompany a speaker to a school and just sit in quietly, observe what was going on. And after that experience, I would make up my mind whether I could face it myself. Well, I did. I agreed. So they sent me to a school and I haven't looked back since. So I kept speaking to Jewish audiences and to schools. Many years later, in 2017, I received a call from the Holocaust Educational Trust um, that, that was of a, a long, quite funny period when for uh, security reasons they told me they wanted me to return to this camp of Stuttov um, to meet some VIPs, but they couldn't tell me who for, for security reasons. So after a lot of mental turmoil, I agreed I would do it. For these 72 years in, in between me being liberated and being contacted by the Educational Trust, during those 72 years I had never gone back, set, neither set foot in Germany nor gone back to any of the camps I'd been in. And now I was asked to go back to the most brutal of these camps, the one which had its own gas chamber and crematorium. I found it very, very stressful to say yes, but eventually I did. And we actually met Prince William and Princess Kate there, and we had been briefed about how to address them, how to pay respect to them, and uh, generally how, how to behave towards royalty. But they're such charmers that within a minute or two, completely forgot you were speaking to a future king and queen of this country, and we just began chatting. We took them through a walkthrough museum in Stuttov, um, which showed different excerpts of what life was like, but of course it had all been sanitized and they realized it, so afterwards we took them into the crematorium. It was amazing when we got there to realize that the crematorium and the gas chamber were exactly as they had been during the war. And I knew from what I'd read that the Nazis in every camp blew up the gas chamber and crematorium before they evacuated it. Eventually, the lady in charge of the museum told us that they had in fact laid dynamite around these two buildings, but instead of blowing it up there and then, they'd put it on a timer and the timer had malfunctioned. So by that time, the Nazis had left and it didn't blow up. So there is a gas chamber and a crematorium, largest life in Stutthof to this day. Wow. Any Holocaust denier should be forced to go to Stutthof and there he'll see that he's fooling himself by saying that there was no crematorium and no gas chambers. You can see one largest life there. That was my experience with royalty, that they were truly charmers. And we had one hour with them in total isolation. No reporter, no video man, no security people, no VIPs were allowed to mingle with us. Just the four of us had private conversations for one hour. And 
they found out a lot that they asked pertinent questions and eventually they began to probe. They said, what other camps have you been in? Have you lost any members of your family? What was the place really like? They realized that what they saw was um, sort of sanitized. So Princess Kate told me that when they realized they were going to see a concentration camp, they began doing a lot of Holocaust-related reading before going, but they said it had not prepared them for what they saw and heard from us too. Ziggy and I were sent to, to meet them, and we did. We have met them several times since. Years later, um, as a result of my ongoing efforts, and I, I was really making up for lost time, I did a lot of talking, quite intensively, um, it was noticed in the 2019-20 Queen's Honours List, I was awarded a British Empire Medal for my contribution to Holocaust education. And um, as a result of, of this, I have had repeated contact with the royal couple. One of the perks of getting this award is um, a Buckingham Palace garden party. So we were invited to one in the summer of 2020, but then COVID intervened and it was postponed. And finally, last May 2022, two years later, they invited us to that belated garden party. And before the date, uh, we had a message that uh, Princess Kate had expressed a desire to, to greet us personally. So we were taken into a special enclosure where those who get a personal royal greeting are taken. And it's, you're really on show that there's a, a central area which is surrounded by a barrier. And everyone who is greeted or to be greeted by a royalty is inside that area. Mm -hmm and all the other thousands there stand outside um, looking in. So eventually uh, Princess Kate came up to us and she greeted me unforgettably warmly. It was actually recorded because shortly before Kate came along, we were standing there waiting for the royal couple to come out and suddenly there was a tap on my shoulder and it was a reporter, the Daily Mail royal reporter, her name was Rebecca English, I think. She said, oh, I'm here on duty, she said, but when I heard that you were here, I felt I had to come and say thank you to you because she had come to this house to interview me and she said, you treated me so nicely that when I heard you were here, I came to say hello to you. And as she was chatting with me, Kate came along, so she got out her camera and she actually recorded it. And Princess Kate greeted me saying, hello, Manfred, how are you? I haven't seen you for such a long time. I, I heard that you had your portrait painted since I last saw you. And let's mention that briefly. So there's a portrait that now King Charles commissioned of you. That's that, right. And it now hangs in Buckingham Palace. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So it, it was heartwarming. And she also assured me that the conversation we had had back in 2017 she said, it's firmly in my mind, I haven't forgotten any of it, wow. she told me. Wow. Yes, so that, I, I met her once or twice since then, 
sort of socially, um, the royal couple are really interested in um, Holocaust information, and they became one year um, um, honorary guests at an annual meeting. And after the meeting, they suggested that a number of Holocaust survivors, of whom I was one, should be taken into a back room, and they came in and spent some time with us at the end of the evening. So I met them again on a one-to-one -one basis. This is the most remarkable um, story. You basically lived through daily terror and hell for years. Um, my first question I have to ask is about your Jewishness. Yes. The fact that you grew up in an observant home, how it, to me, what makes the generation of those that went through the Holocaust the greatest generation is that there doesn't seem to be, despite all the terror you had to go through because of who you were as a Jew, how is it that you don't resent your Jewishness? Well, to be honest with you, it may be a bit difficult to condense it into one minute, but I'll try and be very quick. In the camps, I didn't give God a thought. I was a little boy. I stopped going to school when I was not nine yet. My father left me to flee to England before I was nine. And I had gone to a Jewish school, which I told you was sort of very mildly Jewish. It was attended by Jewish pupils, but the curriculum was primarily secular with very little Jewish knowledge. I could read Hebrew, I knew the alphabet, um, but I, I didn't really have lectures on Judaism, so I, I was quite ignorant. When I reached um, the UK in September 46, my father, despite all his trials and tribulations through the war, had retained his Yiddishkeit. He came from a very orthodox family and he'd spent four years in yeshiva as a young man. Um, and he expected me sort of to, to join him. Well, he asked me to, to wear a kippah. Uh, he got me a pair of tefillin, which I'd never put on, although I had this um, bar mitzvah I spoke about in the camps. I, we didn't have any tefillin because these uh, Riga Jews, they couldn't take the Sifri Torah with them, but tefillin they put into their pockets when they left. We didn't find any spare ones. So I, I did everything... Um, giving the appearance of being a young, observant man. But in my head, once I began to understand some of our prayers, that in our prayers we consider God to be uh, just and merciful, that didn't make sense to me. After my experience, I couldn't imagine how we can address God as merciful, nor just, after what I had seen during the war. So... I didn't have the heart to, to break my father's heart, so I didn't say anything, but it was internal turmoil. Outwardly, I was practicing, but internally, it didn't make sense to me. Well, I didn't know how to handle this, but as I began to mature, I began to realize that we experience miracles around us. We just accept them and don't think about them. 
I, I, I learned about the miracle of birth, it began to strike me the seasons of the year, how it all works like clockwork. We put seeds into the ground and food grows out. You, you, you look at fruit trees and how does one know to grow apples, another one grows pears and cherries. Uh, you look at the sun, and I had learned by then that if the sun was any closer, we would burn. If it was any further, we wouldn't be able to live here. So all these things, and there are hundreds of these things you can think about, effectively they're miracles. Science can't really expend, explain nature. And, and what does nature mean? Somebody has to organize nature. I realized that the, the world, the universe, is a of a, a tightly run, very complex mechanism which cannot be expected to run on its own. So I realized that, that I believe it or not, that there must be a God, an eternal God around. But how could he allow such things to happen? But then it, it struck me that if that God had been is eternal, he must have an eternal mind. We are finite beings who live our 70, 80 years or so, and our minds are also finite. And I thought that the Holocaust, in, in my mind, is something unprecedented in, in human existence. And therefore, perhaps our minds are not able to digest it and appreciate and analyze it, because I haven't found anyone who has given any credible comment on the Holocaust as to why it happened. In fact, when I began to learn about Judaism, when I looked through, um, I had a, 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 rav, a rabbi who helped me, who taught me, um, I found out that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, who we consider to be the human being closest to the Almighty ever during our Jewish existence. He, despite that, pleaded with the Almighty to give him an insight in, into how God functions. And God said, impossible, my ways are not your ways. And that phrase struck me and I decided that God knows what he's doing his mind is able to think about things that are sort of uh, not understandable from our perspective. And therefore, we have to accept that God does not want us to understand if he hasn't given us the power to do so. And once I'd resigned myself to not being able to make sense of why this happened to us, I could believe in God and become a, a devout believing Jew without understanding to this day why so many of us had to go through this and millions of us had lost their lives. I still don't understand it, but I feel this is God's will. We are all God, God, God's creations and we just have to accept it. Wow. Possibly we, we Jews believe in eternal life. Um, maybe in some later, later stage we will be granted some understanding of why this happened. And in that way I have lived my life as a devout and believing Jew. Wow. My final question. 
one thing that strikes me when I listen to your story is the word trauma. We hear that word banded around a lot today. This is real trauma. And it's not to say that people today can't go through trauma, but I've noticed that throughout this whole story, sometimes I'm asking you, you know, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? You don't really go into that. You just lay out the facts. Um, what, what is the secret in your mind to resilience? Well, I began to, to understand from observation around me that each day it was effectively a miracle if you were still alive that evening because not a day went by when numberless people who had been alive in the morning were no longer alive that evening. So I began to look at it as a sort of lottery. Life was like a lottery. If, if, if you were still alive that evening, you had won the lottery that day, effectively. You, you couldn't really be too clever to try and stay alive, uh, avoid the pitfalls. You, you had to be alert and do your best, but that was by no means a guarantee of staying alive. Many people were just happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or sometimes just out of the blue, uh, something happened and th th they were destined to lose their lives that day. So it was just a matter of being alert and as far as was possible to try and stay out of situations where you have the power. This was only very limited most of the time. You were under orders and you had to do what, what you had to do in order not to displease people who have power of life and death over you. But in, in that manner, possibly because I was young and um, sort of basically optimistic and didn't have the, the full mental power to, to appreciate just the sort of situation we were in. Deep down, perhaps, I felt that if I did my work conscientiously, somehow it, it would be appreciated and I, I would be allowed to live, at least on a, on a daily basis. No, no one could plan ahead. But in that manner, I, I lived from day to day. That was it. We were extraordinarily lucky that for two periods, that was um, on those two different railway junctions, both my mother and I worked for the same labor gang, which meant that during the day I could sort of engineer the, some contact with her without arousing any, any attention or you know, uh, subjecting myself to any real danger. And I think my mother gave me sort of support. She couldn't really protect me in any way, but um, just by having my mother near me, um, I, I felt that um, I was as safe as could be, mm. if you know what I mean. I, I wasn't really, but um, 
that that is, I think, how I managed to remain calm and uh, confident. Manfred, thank you so much for your time, for your testimony. We could speak for hours and hours. And to be honest, I'm sure our viewers will have questions they want to ask. So perhaps we encourage you to comment with your questions you may have for Manfred. Um, please, God, we can maybe do some kind of follow-up uh, video. Because um, okay. we could talk for hours and hours, and every single second has been completely captivating to me, and it will be for the viewers. So thank you for the privilege of uh, hearing from you, and uh, look forward to hearing more. Thank you for wanting to do this. I'm doing this not, not for personal aggrandizement, but because over the years I have become convinced, absolutely convinced without a shadow of doubt, that listening to the testimony of a survivor in the first person is the most powerful educational tool that, that is available. I agree.